0: Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages, Amen. I want to speak with you today about the scandalous nature of the grace of God, that sometimes God's grace is so scandalous, it's, it's hard for us to accept. And it's scandalous because He's changed the paradigm. He's redefined the terms, like, the, like all of the readings today have been telling us and have been encouraging us. He's completely turned the system on its head. All day long, we are soaking in a world of karma, a world of you get what's coming to you, you reap what you sow, what goes around comes around. We're not, we're, we don't live in a world where when you screw up at work, when you forget about a midterm, when when you clearly haven't done what you're supposed to do, you get rewarded. That's not the world we that's not the world we live in. Right? And so it's so hard for us to get our head wrapped around that the kingdom of heaven is an upside down kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom that is just completely upside down from our perspective. I bet you in heaven the angels are laughing and saying, who's right side up and who's upside down? Who's the point of reference? But who cares, right? For the moment, you're in your shoes, you're living your life. And Jesus is trying to tell us that everything that you know, that you're used to in this world is upside down in my kingdom. And the story starts off with this tax collector who's sitting at the tax office. Now, you've probably heard various different mentions of tax collectors in in Scripture and so on, but you need to understand why these people were so desperately hated by all of society, Jewish society at the time. And when I tell you, you 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 you'll probably hate them just as much, right? And, And Jesus calls this tax collector and he says to him, hey, follow me. And he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. Right? Let me give you a little bit of context on tax collectors. I'll try to be quick and it's just because it's going to be fun. Right? The office of tax collector was an office which was appointed by the, the the Romans. So he was collecting taxes from the locals for the Romans. Now, he had to collect a certain amount of taxes. It didn't matter who he got them from or how he got them. In fact, he was given Roman guards to protect him because he has Roman money. So, he works for the Romans, he's protected by the Romans, and he's taking from his countrymen, he's taking from his family, he's thinking, he probably, people lived in, in villages and towns at the time, And they tended to marry, intermarry from within their village or their town. So he's taking from people that are all related to him in some fashion, okay? And he's giving this to the enemy, which is occupying their land. Now, remember, the Jews didn't live in in a democracy. They lived in a theocracy. God was their ultimate sovereign. In theory, although when they asked for Saul as a king, that was kind of put that in question, but that's with another story, right? And so, it's almost like there was another king, Caesar, who is like infringing on their king, God, and you are supporting that other king. Now, not only that, how did he get the office of collector? It was something really, really, really expensive to get. You had to pay money to become a tax collector. Why? Because you're going to be able to collect money from whoever you want, pretty much however much you want. There was taxes he was supposed to collect, but there was nothing regulating how much he could collect, so typically they collected a lot more than they should and pocketed the rest, gave to the Roman government what they were supposed to give them and pocketed the rest. All this at the cost of his countrymen. It was probably in the order now of what would be about a quarter million dollars. So where does a country farmer come up with a quarter million dollars, right? What one asset does he have that he could sell to come up with a quarter million dollars so he could buy this office, buy this job? Well, the only asset that he would have that he could sell would be his land. He would sell his land, with that money he would buy the office of tax collector. Well, why is that such a heinous thing, such a terrible crime in the mind of the Jewish people to sell your land? Because that land to them, in their mind, was given to them by God. They lived in the promised land. And when they entered the, the when Joshua entered the promised land, and after he conquered a few cities, He divided up the land by tribe and He divided, divided, divided each tribe up by families and He gave them a piece of land. God gave our family 18 generations ago this piece of land. Now He sold what God gave Him, took that money, the money of the land, the value of the land, the value, the thing that God gave Him and He gave it to the Romans, that by itself should be punishable by death. To get an office so that he can tax his family—these <laughs> people were hated. These people, these people had a target on the on their back, right? The trouble is, is that they were protected by Roman soldiers, so not nobody could do anything. This was the, probably the most despised person. This person was the person who somebody took a sharpie, the equivalent of a first-century sharpie, and, and, and blacked out their name on the family tree. People were, were, were embarrassed to say that we even know this person, let alone are related to him. They wanted nothing to do with them. Sometimes walking by, they would spit on the tax office, the Jews. That's who Levi, the tax collector, is. Jesus says, uh, Le- Levi, yeah, Nobody want I want you, come, come. And he becomes a disciple, he becomes an evangelist, he writes the gospel, he preaches the gospel to Central Africa, Ethiopia, that area, Nubia, and he's a great saint and martyr. What is it? What is it that God sees? What is it that God sees that we don't see? What He sees is the opportunity to give His grace to someone. What's grace? Grace is an undeserved gift. What is it that He sees? He sees someone who is categorically and in every way, by this world's measures and standards, undeserved. And so he pours on that person grace and favor. That's who our God is. And for for those of us who are hardworking and follow the rules and we always do what's right and we try to be good people, we find that scandalous. We find that scandalous because we're a little bit, and I put myself in the same group, a little bit like the older brother in the prodigal son story. I followed the rules, I obeyed my father, I stayed home, I this, I that, and so on. And how come that good for nothing, useless, you know, insert four-letter words, brother of mine gets the path, the father's favor, and so much more? I won't go into that right now. Why? Because that's That's how God is. And in your own life, I I encourage you not to see yourself or myself as either one or the other. Either the older son, the goody two-shoes, who follows the rules, or the completely undeserving person. There's areas in my life where I'm still sitting on my high horse and I still think that I'm, you know, that I'm deserving of God's favor. There's other areas of my life that I'm really ashamed and embarrassed of. There's other areas of my life that are are completely subpar. And I know it. Most of us shy away from those areas. And we we take pride in our achievements and in the things that we think that we're good at. What we're doing well in. But I want to tell you something, that you can expect, expect the scandalous, undeserved favor of God in the areas of your life that are like Matthew the tax collector. And that's what Jesus tells us. He starts telling us about wine. The Pharisees and the scribes, they see Jesus eating at Matthew's house. And they have a fit, right? They have a seizure about it because they're like, "He's a tax collector. There's prostitutes here. There's this. There's that. How could you possibly go there and eat with them? Are you out of your mind?" And they start, and they start, to and they so your disciples don't fast. They don't wash their hands. They don't all these rules, right? So Jesus tells them, "Look." You can't take an old wineskin and fill it with new wine, it will burst. You can't take, that That analogy may not be familiar too, I've explained it in previous sermons, I won't bore you now, right? But he's saying you can't take the old and put the new in it, it doesn't work, the new will burst the old. You can't take an old garment that's torn and put a new patch on it, on the tear, and wash it, the, the new patch will shrink. And it will pull away and the care will be made worse. What's he talking about here? He's talking about an old way and a new way. An old covenant and a new covenant. Jesus says to his disciples, I give you a new covenant in my blood. Right? And this new covenant is the covenant of grace. It's the covenant that God has made with you. That God will always be good to you. God will always be good to you. I'm saying a third time because most of us still don't believe it. God will always be good to you, regardless of what you've done, and especially in the moments in which we deem ourselves the least deserving. That's why our church has taught us to say, Lord, have mercy 10,000 times in every service. That's why the church has taught us to approach God as sinners unworthy of unworthy of His his love and His kindness and His favor. It's taught us to see ourselves, to know ourselves as unworthy, as undeserving. Not to have some kind of low self-esteem or self-deprecatory thoughts and, and, and putting ourselves down. No, to accept my true status before God Almighty and to come to Him in humility, right? And to come to Him in humility, recognizing that I am indeed undeserving, and to the undeserving He gives His grace, because that's what it is, it's favor for the undeserving. Jesus shows favor to Levi, He doesn't call any of the scribes or the tax collectors to follow Him, they were obviously standing around, because they had a connection about it, right? He doesn't call them. He doesn't call the people who know the law inside and out. He calls the guy who sold out on Israel. He literally sold out. He literally sold his God-given gift to the enemy, to the Romans. He calls him. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. And so it just doesn't work. It doesn't work when we try to approach God, when we try to understand God, when we try to to, to interact with God, using the ways of the world, expecting that what, what like our karma from God, expecting that what goes around and comes around with God, it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not how He works, that's not how He functions. And that's not what we should expect from Him. And all of the readings today are telling us that God has changed the paradigm. So, what does that mean for you and what does it mean for me? Expect God's grace. Expect His favor. Expect His His helping hand. Expect His His love and His kindness and an extra measure of His compassion in the areas of your life that are the most painful for you. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a gentle, gentle, invitation. How many people here are very, don't put put up your hand, don't answer this question out loud or visibly, right? How many of you are extremely faithful in your prayers, okay? How many of us are are, um, following God with all of our hearts? How many of us are fasting all the fasts of the church? How many of us, etc., etc., right? I fall short in a lot of those areas. Expect Expect in those areas, expect at times of prayer that a little nudge is going to come at your heart, that the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to call you and say, "Come pray with me. Come pray with me." It only take a couple of minutes. God loves to make things seem easy to us, seem simple to us. It won't be tiresome. It will be easy. It will be quick. God loves. God loves to lighten our load. He loves to say, let me take your heavy load and you take my right load. Expect an invitation from God. That's the first thing. Now, everything stops there if you do nothing with the invitation. If I invite you and you don't come, nothing happens. So expect an invitation from God. The next thing is respond to the invitation. Whatever it is God is inviting you to. You know, if there's, you love everybody at work except for this one person who's the thorn in your side, the bane of your existence, and you're thinking of leaving work to go somewhere somewhere else, expect God to send you little invitations of of how to cope with this person, how to love this person, how to live with this person, etc. And when when God invites you, respond. Now here's the next expect. Expect something else. Expect that your response is going to be very little compared to the goodness of God. Very little compared to the grace of God. Very little compared to the kindness of God. Very little compared to what it should be or what it ought to be by anyone's standards. That's okay. That's okay. You've fallen out of the habit of prayer at a time of prayer in the morning, at night, at some time when you you used to pray. You, you feel that little nudging. Come pray. Come pray with me, says the Holy Spirit. So you go and you used to pray for half an hour. Now after three minutes, you can barely you know you're you're starting to like lean on one foot and on the other, and and, and you can't take more. At right, five minutes, you close it up and you say, "Man, I'm not I'm not like I used to be." You've got it. For sure, God will not bless me like He used to in the past. No. Expect that God will complete your response to His invitation. Expect that. That's how it works. That's how grace, that's how, that's how, it's a completely different paradigm. It's not you reap what you sow. It's the areas in our lives which are the least worthy, in which we're the least worthy of His help and His grace, is the areas that we will find. If we expect it. If you look for it, you'll find that gentle, quiet invitation. Respond. And your response will be, probably, I'll speak for myself, my response is pathetic. It's is, is really pathetic. It's really so small, so meaningless. A drop in the ocean. And he makes it perfect. That's how it works. That's the new wine. That's the new wineskin. That's the new covenant. That's the new cloth that he's talking about here. St. Cyril of Alexandria explains this. But you can't, you, you can't, you can't, like math and calculus are two very different things for the sciences, similarly. Math and calculus are like two, they're like worlds apart. Yes, they're both under this great umbrella of mathematics, but they're not the same. These things are not the same. Either you believe in your heart that you reap what you sow, or you believe in your heart and you expect that God will bless you in the areas. Uh, in which of your life, in which you are the most undeserving. Glory be to God forever and ever. And I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray.